Thank you guys. Hey, um, I just got word that uh, apparently one of our classrooms didn't have enough volunteers to open up earlier, and so there were some families that came by and looked to check their kids in, and there wasn't anyone in there yet. Um, those rooms are now open, so um, they did get some volunteers in there, so if you want to run your kid over, that would be awesome. The first, like, honestly, the first 15, 20 minutes of this message is just kind of garbage anyway, so um, you're not going to miss anything. Just slip back in. Everything will be fine. <clears throat> If you can't make fun of yourself, then you have no right to make fun of others. I think that's in the Bible. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Everybody doing well this morning? Yeah? Awesome. Beautiful day outside, yeah? Beautiful day in the neighborhood. March madness, spring gladness. Duke lost. Carolina won. Just... Grace is happening. Hey, don't, don't sing that song. I'm using that in my message later. Shh. You just written. First Corinthians 13. We're having our own little thing up here. Um, First Corinthians 13 is where we're going to be this morning. We are going through Corinthians in general, but particularly right now we're in First Corinthians 13, the famous passage on love. Um, we've been working in this for a couple of weeks. We got at least another week left in that. But this week, we're going to uh, make our way through, I guess you'd say, the more well-known part, the description of love, the wedding sermon part, the Hallmark card part, if you will. And um, up to this point, what we have seen is that it's not exactly uh, the meaning behind it and the purpose behind what has been written doesn't exactly fit that Hallmark greeting card kind of sentimentality that we tend to approach this passage with, or at least in the way that it has been presented. Um, it's, a, it's a lot heavier than that, actually. And we're going to see the, the heaviest part of that today. Um, so far, when we looked at verses 1 through 3, we saw that if I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. And on it goes, Paul saying, listen, giftedness, miracles, uh, uh, ministry ability, those things, those are not indicators. That is not the litmus test by which you determine your, your walk. How we are, how we're doing as Christians. The litmus test for that is not our giftedness, it's love. Without love, those things don't even matter. You guys remember David Koresh some years ago? Um, David Koresh, the leader of that Waco cult, uh, Branch Davidian, I think was the name of it in Waco, who um, led, falsely led a cult of people eventually to their death. 55 adults, 28 children died. And since then, a lot of time has been put into studying his teaching and these, this kind of cult mentality and what is it that draws people into this and what are the things that they're teaching. And um, one of the things that was a regular uh, part of the teaching of David Koresh, taught from the Bible of all things to his people was this, well, I'll give you a direct quote. He would say this, this is specifically one of his messages. Are you really a Christian? The apostles of old used to heal the sick and raise the dead. They were spirit-filled men. What about you? Do you do those things today? How can these stupid churches talk about the spirit when they don't even do what the apostles did 2,000 years ago? They sin against the Holy Spirit because they claim to be led by the spirit, but they are led by the devil. That's David Koresh's from a sermon that he gave to his people. And what he said was, are you a Christian? Are you really serving Jesus? Are you a spirit-led Christian? Here's the indicator. 
Are you doing miracles? Are you healing the sick? Are these great things happening? And, and Paul preaches the exact opposite of that in this test, in this text. He says, that's not the litmus test. If anything, that is a dangerous path to go down. The litmus test for Christianity is love. It is not miracles. It's not giftedness. It's none of those things. And a guy like David Koresh, though I would not call him a brother by any means, but a guy who's teaching that, he's he's looking at the wrong gauge. I mean, imagine if you will, you're in your car and you're driving over the Siskiyou Pass. You're trying to make your way down to California. And as you go up the pass, you start to hear a little something different in your car. You start to feel a little vibration you didn't feel before. Some of us have experienced this before. You look in the rearview mirror, you can see the smoke starting to come out. You can see the steam and you're like, "Uh uh-oh. So what do we do right away? We look to the gauges. We want to go, okay, what's going on? Is everything okay? And so you look down and you look at the gauge there on the left of your steering column. And it's like, well, it looks great. In fact, I mean, the thing is like perfect. I don't think that gauge could be any better. So you press on, but the noise gets louder. The smoke gets thicker, the steam, it just, something doesn't seem right. And you're like, but, but my gauge says everything's okay. I've got to just press on. I've got to keep going. And then inevitably, so you broke down the side of the road. You call the mechanic. The guy drives up there with the tow truck and comes in and you're talking with him and you're like, man, I, I don't understand. Everything seemed totally fine. My gauge was fine. I get which gauge? The gauge right there. Sir, that's the fuel. Um, that's the fuel. The gauge that you were looking at is not an indicator of your engine's health, sir. Because if you had looked over here, you would see oil empty. Bad thing. Well, that's what happens. That's what Paul's saying. If you're looking for an indicator to determine, man, how am I doing? Am I growing? Am I growing in my Christ likeness? Am I following him as a disciple? How do we even know? He says, it's your love. That's the litmus test. Not giftedness, love. And so we saw that last week. And and really, there's so much more we could do on that. I mean, Jesus even said to his apostles himself, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Later, the apostle John, who wrote the book of John, will later say, beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him. He, He says, look, the commandment is love one another. And he says, but look, This is not a new commandment. This commandment has been around for a long time. Even the 10 commandments of old, uh, don't covet, don't lie. All of those really are just outcroppings of, hey, just love people. Don't treat them unlovingly, love people. This is an old commandment that's been around for a long time. But there's something that happens for the believer in Christ when he experiences the love and grace of Jesus Christ that suddenly your capacity is different. Everybody in our culture believes that we should be loving people. That's not unique to Christians. Everybody believes in love. Everybody desires love. Everybody wants love. The difference is, is that when you get saved, when you become a Christian, your capacity for love and the characteristics of the love that you are, be, that you are now able to express by the leading empowerment of the Holy Spirit are different. It's not a self-centered, self-gratifying love. It's the kind of love that is apart from deservedness. It's apart from merit. It's a gracious love in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the indicator that we should look at. So David Koresh's question, are you really a, quish, a Christian? That's hard to say. David Koresh's question, are you really a Christian, is not look at giftedness, but are you growing in love? 
That's where we should look. That's the dial. That's the gauge we should look at. Then last week, we laid the foundation for this very understanding. We talked about the fact that the love in 1 Corinthians 13 is not that romantic, um, self-centered, emotional, or Valentine's card kind of love. Um, It's not a mushy, romantic kind of love. It's God's love. And we talked about the fact that as believers, man is created to reflect the glory of God, the characteristics of God. And this goes in line with what Paul's been teaching for two chapters now, that man is the body of Christ and that even the gifts that we've been given are given to us that we might manifest, that we would bring to life, that we would present in a visible, tangible way to the world around us the nature, characteristics, and love of God. So that's what we're called to do. We're called to love like God. 1 Corinthians 13 is a description that shows us the love of God. And then we went into verse four and started going through them one at a time. Let's take these things out. And we didn't get real far. We we got love is patient, which is the first one, which we defined as a holding, uh, let me get it exactly right, a holding intention in our minds before we give rise to passion. In other words, love has a long fuse. Love sticks it out. Love doesn't get offended and bolt. Love says, even though I feel tension, I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to be patient. That's what that means. And the reason that we are to be patient is because that's the love God has shown us. That's the kind of patience God has shown us. As Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That in the same way God doesn't come to us and go, Jeff, I have had it with that guy. I'm done with him and move on. He is patient with me because he desires salvation and repentance for me. And then the counterpart for this is the next one, love is kind. If if patience is the withholding of that passion, that anger, that resentment, or that retaliation, kindness is the extension of love and grace. And the two of them are always connected together. They're inseparable. So, In Exodus 34, when God reveals his character to Moses, when he shows his glory, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So when you read through, you read through the gifts of the spirit. I mean, throughout scripture, you find the patience of God always connected with the kindness and the love of God for the same reasons. His kindness leads to repentance, the scriptures tell us. So he's been patient with us and we've experienced that patience and therefore we are called to be patient with others. Now today, the plan is supposed to be to just kind of keep going through those things and we are, but a little differently. I'm not gonna give the time and attention to each one of these moving forward um, that I had really even originally intended. And and the reason I'm gonna do that is I don't believe that that does justice to the overarching purpose of what Paul is saying in this text. So the outline that we're going to have, the thing that we're going to do today is is pretty simple. Rather than going through and trying to build some sort of uh, total definition of love and do the whole wag your finger. Now you go love, you love that. And I'm going to do some of that. And we're going to go, we're going to go through them, but we're going to go through them quickly. And we're going to get all the way through verse eight today so that we can come back around to the initial, the actual purpose of all of this. Um, Because the outline, like I said, is really rather simple. We're going to go through the characteristics of the Christian love that we're called to live. And then we're all going to come to the conclusion here at the end that we can't do that. We don't do that. And we won't be faithful to do that. And then we're going to come to the understanding that that's Paul's purpose in this all along. 
Um, a, a better way of stating this outline is the words by one of my favorite uh, thinkers, theologians out there, Tim Keller. And he says that in this passage, we are confronted by love. We are crushed by love. We are enraptured by love so that we can love. So that's our outline. So let's just go through them quickly. Verse four, we've already got love is patient, love is kind. First Corinthians 13 verse four then says, love does not envy. So the Corinthian congregation that Paul's writing to in this case was one that was riddled with envy. They had all sorts of it. Paul writes in first Corinthians 3, three. Uh, you remembered we studied this probably like, I don't know, 10 years ago, it seems. It was a long time ago. But in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, he says, you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh behaving only in a human way? The church in Corinth is riddled with division and strife and they're dividing over all kinds of issues. There's envy with regards to wealth. There's envy between gender roles, men and women. Um, there's envy with regards to spiritual giftedness and this gift is appreciated, but that one's not. And, and they're really, they're just an educated, smart, prideful group of people anyway. And so they're just riddled with envy. And this right here, they're, they're, you gotta understand too, there's two different types of envy. There's, there's your classic textbook envy that says, I want what that other person has. So you might have someone who's saying, man, my neighbor has a Ferrari. I really want a Ferrari. And you can get green with envy over the fact that you want what someone else has. But there, there's even a more sinister, a more wicked, if you will, type of envy. And maybe it's really just the inevitable result of the first. And it's the kind that it's not just that I want what you have. It's that I don't want you to have anything. And so think, if you will, of the story in Solomon, those of you that know it, where there's a woman, two women actually, who both had babies. And one of them dies. And so in the night, the woman whose baby dies takes the other woman's baby and pretends that it's her own. And so this argument, as you would imagine, erupts and they go before the king and they're fighting over whose baby it is. And the king says, give me a sword. We'll just divide the baby. They can each have half. The true mom is there going, no, don't hurt the baby. Don't hurt the baby. But the other one's like, fine. I would rather her have nothing a wicked, deep-seated selfishness that doesn't just want for you, but doesn't want for others, doesn't rejoice in others. There's always gonna be somebody richer than us. There'll always be somebody prettier than us. There'll always be somebody faster, more athletic, stronger. There will always be reasons to envy others, but Paul will write later in Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain. It's great gain. He goes on after that and says, love does not boast. It is not arrogant. And the verb here means to heap praise upon oneself or to behave as a braggart. So we know from the Corinthian congregation that they're a proud, dividing, arrogant people who esteem one teacher and talk bad about another. I'm of Paul's camp. Oh, you're an Apollos guy. That guy's nothing. And even in the spiritual setting of the church, there was this competition and this boasting arrogance that happens there that is absolutely at odds with Christianity. Um, boasting is an antithesis of Christ-like character because Christian love at its heart is humble just by nature and definition, not boastful. Um, there, there's a story, some of you guys may know the name. His name's William Carey. 
He was a missionary who's considered to be one of the fathers of modern missions. He did an amazing work, despite the fact that he didn't really have an educated background, was a real simple man, went to India. He translated scripture into over 35 Indian dialects, um, and we still build upon the work of William Carey in worldwide missions to this day. But there were some people who actually disdained him and would put him down because he came from humble beginnings. In fact, he was a cobbler. He was a shoemaker. That's where he came from. He didn't come from the seminary or the education training or any of those things. He was a shoemaker. And there's a story told where one night there was a dinner and all these important people from these big churches and ministries and educated people were all together. And William Carey was getting a lot of attention for his work and it was eating this one guy up. And he, he finally gets to the point that he speaks up intending to really just bring William Carey down to really just kind of throw him under the bus and expose him for not being as educated and as brilliant as they are. And so he says out loud, he says, so Mr. Carey, I hear that you're a shoemaker. And William Carey responds, oh no, no, sir. I'm not a shoemaker. I'm just a shoe mender. See, he, he got under it. Even, even when it was being attacked, even when he was cutting down, he even took the legs out from under the guy by humbling himself even lower and seeking to, to not build himself up, but to humble himself. That's what Christian love does. Next, in verse five, also love is not rude. Now, this seems a little out of place because not to read too far ahead, but when you consider what we just got out of and where we're going into, it says love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant prideful type things he's talking about. It's not rude. Doesn't seem like, then it goes into love does not insist on its own way, kind of back to the pridefulness thing. And so rude in the middle seems a little bit out of place. Like he, he kind of got uh, disconnected in his thinking. And so he threw this one in there, but, but it's really kind of a translational thing that would help us a little better. The idea that love is not rude, it means it doesn't behave dishonorably, disgracefully or indecently, um, but it's the same root word that Paul uses in Romans 1.27 when he speaks about this harmful, horrible um, uh, uh, homosexual relationship between two men and he refers to it as shameful and it's the same word that he's using there and he said well wait why does that have to do with pride and, and seeking our own interests and all of those kind of things because even in the thrust of Paul's teaching in Romans he's saying that the person who puts aside God's plan for his life who puts aside God's will God's word and says instead I, I'll choose my way and it even ends up playing out with regards to those relationships in Romans 1. Forget what God wants, I'll take myself. It's this, I'll take my own pleasure, my own desires, even my own intended nature, I'll set it aside and I'll choose me in the end of it. He says, love doesn't behave that way. And which leads us again right back into the next one in verse 5. Love does not insist on its own way. It's not self-seeking. It's not self-determining. It's not seeking its own interests and putting other things aside. Love puts others' needs first. Now, again, in all of these, these are characteristics of God's love. So in all of them, we see them best through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So take your mind to the scene where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's in the shadow of the cross. His death is looming. It is imminent. He knows it. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. It's going to be mournful. And there is a natural, not sinful anxiety, but a natural fear and dread of what's actually to come. And he prays to the Lord. And what does he pray? 
So Lord, if there's any way, will you take this cup from me? If there's any way that we can do this because I don't want my flesh, I don't want to go through that. But then what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he sets his own agenda, his own self-interest, all of those things aside and says instead, but I will have what God will have for me. I mean, really, that's the, the most pure and basic definition that you can come up with, really, of Christian love. It really is. The idea that love is not self-seeking, but it puts others first. Because even Paul in Philippians, when he's writing and he's describing this very thing, he writes in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And then he says, let each of you look not only onto his own interests, but into others' interests as well, and have this mind among you, which was in Christ Jesus, who though didn't even count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and took the form of a servant, came in the image of man, and it goes on in that famous well-known description of the crucifixion. That that's what love is. Love is, is that decision to set my own. It doesn't mean you don't have interests. It doesn't mean that we don't have a selfish thought that comes to mind. Love is the action. And what am I going to do now? This is my options. I can choose what God has for me. I can choose what's best for that person, or I can choose what's best for me. And love, godly Christian character type love says, I'm going to put the other person's needs first, and I'm going to have what God has. I'm going to have what they have. I'm going to seek their needs before me. And it really is probably the most fullest expression of what Christian love is all about. But Paul goes on, never been short for words he is. And he goes on after that and he says it is not irritable or easily angered. Or literally, love is not easily carried away in anger. Which again can seem like a jump from a self-focused kind of love to now just love's not angry, so just don't be angry. But that's not actually what he's saying here. I mean, it may surprise some of you to know, nowhere in the Bible does God throw out any sort of blanket statement where he says, never be angry, it's a sin. That's not in the Bible. That doesn't come up. It'd been really easy for him here if that's what he was saying that says, hey, love, don't be angry. What it means is it's not easily angered. It's not short-tempered. It's not quick to move to anger. I mean, in the scriptures, we see that Jesus gets angry. We see Jesus go into the temple and react with anger. God, even in his definition, his expression of who he is in Exodus 34 says that he is slow to what? Anger. Doesn't say that he doesn't anger. He says he's slow to anger. And then the book of James takes it to a whole nother level. In the book of James, he says, be angry and sin not. Be angry and sin not. In other words, there's a way to be angry that is sin and there's a way to be angry that's not sin. And in the one that's not sinned, be angry. He commends anger to us. Seems to go against everything that we would think as Christians. Oh, we can never be angry, but James commends it to us. What's the difference? Well, there's a way to be angry and sin, and there's a way to be angry and not sin. And the difference between the two of them really is motive. Because think about it. What does God get angry about? What do we see Jesus angered over in the scriptures? We see Jesus is angered when barriers are put between the worship of his, from his children being able to come and worship and receive grace to be able to come into the temple. We see him angered when his people are taken advantage of. 
We see him angered when those that are intended to be priests that are reconciling people to him are instead creating barriers, keeping them coming to Jesus. We see him angered when little ones are offended. You know the story? It would be better for that guy if he had a millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the bottom of the ocean. What angers God and what angers us are two totally different things 99% of the time. Because, I mean, just let's be honest. What angers us? When our rights are affected. When someone cuts us off. When, when someone jumps in front of us in line. When someone says something to us that hurts our feelings. It, it's not about those things. It's not about the results of sin. I mean, the scriptures even picture Jesus when he comes to the tomb at, at the tomb of Lazarus. And it says that Jesus was deeply troubled in spirit. It's the passage where it says Jesus wept. And we tend to translate that. In fact, every English translation translates that passage as if Jesus was, he was just grieving, he was sad, he was moved. Um, But that's not what the literal text actually says. In fact, all of the German translations, for example, get that one right. And what they say is Jesus was infuriated. He was angry. He He was weeping, but he was at the tomb at a funeral and he was angry. Yes, because he's standing there and he is watching the full end results of sin play out right in front of him. The death of his friend whose body is now rotting and corroding, though God created him to live in fellowship with him forever. He's seeing broken fellowship between brothers and sisters. He's seeing weeping and absence of joy, pain. And when he sees those things, he understands the results of sin on humanity and it bothers him. But we get bothered about things that just tend to affect us. And so we get angry when somebody pulls out in front of us in the car or we get angry when someone says something to us or, or whatever the case may be because our, our approach tends to be much more self-justifying and much more like protective of what's going on with us when Christian love actually is really a disdain for self and more concerned with what's going on with others. So just time out, quick assessment, how we doing? I can't imagine there's anyone in this room that's like, check, check, nailed it. Ask my wife, I'm on it. No, you know, I can't imagine that's going on, but just, you know, in your own mind, self-assessment. If we're called to reflect the glory of God, and this is what the glory of God looks like. This is the characteristics of a nature. This is Christian love. How are we doing? Verse five continues on. Love is not resentful. Oh, if you were check, 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 and you got this one, phew, liar. Love is not resentful. It keeps no record of wrongs is what that literally means. Um, th- there's a whole... Now with the invention of, of the internet and social media and all the things that we have now, there are, there's a whole, there are benefits to it because we can go online and we can take in teachings from amazing Bible teachers from all over the place. We can track with ministries, see things that are going on, and there's tons of benefit to that. The resources we have are unbelievable. But, but with that, there's also been things that have, dis, that have happened that have kind of come up that are a little bit frustrating to me, and I do believe um, to some degree they're frustrating to God also. And, and one of them that has really risen up in recent years is online. There are often things that they get referred to as discernment ministries. And so people will have blogs or websites or things like that for the sole purpose of kind of watchdogging every other church, how they do, what that pastor says, how's the leadership run and all this thing. Oftentimes, even I would say most times from even thousands of miles away from where that church even is. 
So not in the context of that particular community, not part of that church, but feeling like, man, I know what's going on and I'm going to watch from a distance on the internet and make snap decisions and draw conclusions and talk to disgruntled people that help me build the case. And so you have all these discernment ministries that are out there that exist for the sole purpose of keeping records of wrongs that people do all over the place. And then some of the time, some of it, let's say it's even justified. Say, say there's a church that a pastor's just being completely abusive to his congregation, teaching heresy, whatever the case may be. And so, so maybe that guy feels like, no, my mission is to protect his church from him. And so I'm bringing these things to light and I want him to repent. And then sometimes though, then the pastor might even repent. And then a lot of times, what do we end up doing? Well, he didn't mean it. He didn't repent enough. We'll see if it's real repentance, but until I see real repentance, I'm hanging on to these wrongs. Wrong. It's the exact opposite of what the thing says. Love keeps no record of wrongs, is what the scripture says. And again, character of God that we are called to manifest. And so what about this? Well, 2 Corinthians 5, 19 says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and now entrusting to us the message or the ministry of what? Who knows it? Reconciliation. Think about that. He says, not just a don't keep record of wrongs, but Jesus chose to pass over, Romans says, sins previously committed. Chose not to keep record of our wrongs because his mission was to reconcile us to him. And now he has handed that ministry and mission to us. We are ministers of reconciliation, not keepers of wrongdoing. I would love to see people open up websites that say, my website ministry is to reconcile. Not to keep record of wrongs, but to find two people that have been separated from whatever reason and help bring them together and restore fellowship to the two of them. Because that's what God has done for us. He has reconciled us to the Father in spite of sins created. He's passed over those sins to reconcile us to him. And you say, but that guy, man, you, okay. The guy that I'm talking about though, it's like real stuff. It's not like he just talked about it on a blog. Like it's real stuff. Like this guy is our enemy. But Jesus said, didn't he? You've heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemy. But I say to you what? Love your enemies, he said. How we doing? Don't raise your hand. No one could. Verse six. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with truth. Or literally, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices when good wins out. Now, remember this in the Corinthian context. Go back, if you will, to our earlier time in Corinthians when we kind of first got going in this chapter. Remember, there's a guy in the church that is involved in an egregious sin. And Paul calls him out in 1 Corinthians 5 and says, it's reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And then listen to what Paul says. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So here's what's going on. In the church, a guy is sleeping with his mom. And the rest of the church, instead of mourning over this, instead of grieving over this sin, they're celebrating it. They're proud in it. Man, what a great thing that we have this kind of liberty where a dude can sleep with his stepmom. That's just awesome. That's literally what's going on. And he's saying, why are you celebrating in this? Shouldn't you rather grieve in what's going on here? 
And then when you go into Romans chapter one, Paul talks about that, about celebrating when sins are committed and glorying in them. It's one of the harshest verses really in scripture. Romans 1.32 says that the inevitable result of our continued depravity, walking down that road of sin, in worshiping ourselves, calling our own shots, not giving credence to God, not following his word, not following his plan, the inevitable result, Romans 1.32 says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so like the bottom of the barrel in Romans 1 is the fact not just that sin is committed, but when people are willing to sit back, see evil take place, and be happy about it. Now guys, this is a big word. Please tune in here. Because this is what we are being asked to do in the church today. This is what the church is being asked to do. And the word that's being used to promote this is the word tolerance. We're being told that we need to be tolerant of others and we need to celebrate others in things that differ, not just from our own opinions, but specifically from God's word. Now, if we meant tolerance in in terms of how we thought about tolerance 25, 30 years ago, I'd be fine with that. Because what tolerance used to mean is that in our country, we have the freedom to have a certain set of beliefs and someone else has the freedom to have a different set of beliefs too, that there's room for people who have different sets of belief and we give each other that room. But that definition has changed. And what, do- what tolerance means now is not just room to believe differently, but an absolute acceptance of the thing the other person believes. And, and the way you see that is because who are the people that are called intolerant? It's those who disagree. So if we don't celebrate um, homosexual marriages, then we are intolerant because we don't believe that that should be allowed. There's, There's no longer room for both people to have that sort of viewpoint. Now, the counter to that and the truth of that is that the church has to find a way to respond to those things in a loving way. Because what does the Bible tell us about those who are in sin? What does Jesus exemplify for us with regards to the prostitute or any of those types of people? We need to love them, do we not? Do that. (laughs) Yes, we do. We do. And, and, And it's not just some sentimental like I love them. But remember, love is action. So so it's about intentionally finding ways to express love and care to people that we differ with, but we dare not cross the line into acceptance of the things that they do because that's supremely unloving. Because the truth of the matter is this, you hear it said, God loves the sinner, hates the sin. And the reason is, is because the sin destroys the sinner. And when we start to glory in the things that they're doing or give approval to people who are relishing things that are are antagonistic to the very word of God, we have to understand the inevitable result of that, that that sin is trying to destroy them. Satan's not just trying to help them have a good time in the meantime. He's trying to kill and to destroy and to steal And so we have to find ways, this is going to be a wrestling match for the church, and this is changing the culture of the church and the thought processes of church ministry, probably for the unforeseeable future, because this is what our culture is going towards, finding a way to still show love, but to make our stand that says, but I can't approve of what you're doing, because I can't go there, I can't do that, because I love you. I love you too much to celebrate that which I know is going to hurt you. So... Time out. Basketball season, right? So time out. How we doing? 
How are we doing in all that stuff? Does any of that, when you start reading all those things and you start seeing that, does it feel burdensome at all? Like, man, I, I gotta be that. I'm not that way. I tend to get easily angered over those I disagree with instead of extending love to them. I'm struggling in those things. Are you patient? Are you humble? Are you growing in all of those things? How are we doing? If the answer is not great, then I have really bad news for you because the worst part is the next verse. The worst, best part. The killer is in verse seven. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's almost as if he's saying, in case anyone slipped through and felt they're doing good, let's just throw a blanket statement on the whole thing. And he throws out these alls. Love believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And if you thought the other stuff was heavy, listen to what Paul's saying here. The first one here, and remember, remember, this is the characteristics of God's love that we're called to manifest. This is the definition of Christian love, not a flowery poem. It's at its very nature an indictment against the church of Corinth saying this is the way that they're not living in a loving way. So if we consider this stuff, look what he says. Love bears all things. Bears actually doesn't mean just bears with or puts up with or carries, but it also can be translated to hide or to cover. And all things is a big word. It means all things, but also can mean universe. All things, not most things, not a whole bunch of things, not almost every single thing, but all things is what it says. So, so think about that. Love bears with or covers all things. The idea being is that love never separates over a sin. Love never ends, ends a relationship because it was offended, ever. So much so that the emphasis would seem to say, if you have ever ended a relationship because of a sin or of an offense, then you haven't been loving. These are continual. The phrases are used in a continuation effect. Love continues to bear all things. 1 Peter 4.8 says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. The next one is love believes all things. It doesn't mean that love believes in Bigfoot, love believes in uh, UFOs, love believes whatever your general belief is. Think of it in more like um, economic terms, believes all things, um, has faith in. So for example, if you have a stock that you have faith in, you have belief in, then you would, or as it can also be translated, you would put your weight behind it. So the chairs you're sitting in, you believe will hold you up. So you allow them to hold your weight. Or if you have a stock that you believe in, you believe in it so much so that you would invest in it. You would put weight behind that belief. You're investing in that belief. But unlike stocks, think about it. When, when we have a stock investment and it's growing, we're really excited about it because it's benefiting us. But the moment it goes, uh-oh. And what do we do? sell, sell, sell. We withdraw from that, right? But that's not what this is saying. This says love always stays invested. Love always stays connected. Love never disengages ever. Over what? Universe. All things. Love never disconnects. The next one, love hopes all things. It expects the best. 
It, it doesn't jump to negative conclusions and it never hopes for bad results in other people. It always, every single time, without exception, expects and assumes the best from those it loves. And then the last one, which is the hardest. Love endures all things. It never quits. It sticks it out forever. How long? Universe. Forever. What about when it's sinned against? Always. Paul's saying, if you're loving someone, you never, ever, ever, ever give up on them. Oh, I love them. I just don't do anything for them. No, love is action. You never disengage from your brother and sister. You never do that. That's what love says. If anybody could have possibly been fooling themselves as they're going through this text in 1 Corinthians 13, thinking, I am pulling all of this off. It's impossible, right? It's impossible. There's no chance that we're going to be able to do that. And so here's the thing. We've been confronted with love, the definition of it. And it crushes us when we realize the weight of it. Does it not? That's what glory means, right? If we're called to glorify God by living out his attributes, glory means weight. And the weight of the glory of God, when we realize what's really expected of us, it's got to crush us. And so our reaction to that can often be one of sort of self-justification or trying to explain things away. Well, that's not really what Paul meant. Oh, you're going back to the Greek. That's not really what that means. And it's a poem. It's trying to be figurative and try to explain all of those things away. But here's the thing. Even if we try to explain it away and say, that can't be the kind of love that's expected of me. It is the kind of love we expect of other people, isn't it? Isn't that the kind of love that we, if not even demand from others? That says, don't leave me. He left me. She abandoned me. How dare they? We get in our marriage services and we say those very things right through thick or thin, richer or poorer. I will always be there for you. And we make those vows and we, we, even though we know that we can't possibly do these things ourselves, it's the very demands that we put on other people. I used to be a huge fan of the actor John Cusack. I used to love all of his movies until literally John Cusack and I got into an argument. And that's a story for another time. And I mean that literally. It's, you don't have time for it, you don't want to know. But I used to watch all of his movies. And John Cusack was in a movie that Woody Allen had written somewhere around mid to late 90s, I think. It's not a great movie, don't go rent it. Um, but, but it was called Bullets Over Broadway. And in that particular character, John Cusack has an opportunity uh, to have an affair, to cheat on his wife, girlfriend, whatever it was at the time. And he was wrestling with this because he really wanted to, but he was like, but I can't do that to her. And so he's talking to his friend played by Rob Reiner. I don't know what the name was. We'll just call him Rob. He's talking to Rob Reiner. He's like, man, I, I have this opportunity and this gal's beautiful and I really want to do this, but I just can't do that to her. And he goes, man, that kind of stuff is just hogwash. We create our own moral universe, man. You got to do what you got. And it's not, it can't hurt her if she doesn't know about it anyway. What's the big deal? And so he does it. He goes and has the affair. Well, later on in the movie, he finds out that his girlfriend, the one he cheated on, had an affair against him. And so what's his reaction? Well, it's not, well, you know what? So did I. No, he was like, how dare you? How can you possibly do that to me? You turn your back on me. And he is indignant and livid at the fact that she would have such an affair. 
And he's just going up, demanding that same kind of commitment to him that he can't possibly give. And then it's hilarious because he's like, who was it? And you know who it was? It was Rob. But don't, don't we do that? Even think in the little things. When you pull out in front of another car as you're driving to work, what do you do? Oh, I'm sorry, my bad. But when someone pulls out in front of you, and it might happen a quarter of a mile later, you jerk! <laughs> do you see how it's the kind of love and grace that we need, we long for, we demand from others because we know we're going to fail, so we need a love that will never abandon us, but yet it's the very kind of love that we can't possibly give to other people. The weight of that is burdensome. A teaching to go through these things and just sit here and hammer home, make sure you do this, make sure you do this, make sure you do this. It would bury anyone because who has a shot at that at all ever? That's just way too much. But here's the beauty of this particular passage. Like I said, using Tim Keller's outline, we've been confronted with love, crushed by love, but who's a Christian? David Koresh's old argument, who's a Christian? It's also one who has been captured by love. Because think about what Paul does here. It'd be really easy for Paul to say, hey, Corinth, listen up. You never abandon. You always hope all things. You do this and make these, present them in the form of commands. But he doesn't do that. What he does, he personifies them. He personifies these characteristics. He doesn't do that with hope. He doesn't do that with faith. He doesn't do that with any of those other things. He personifies them and says, you, not command, but love never fails. Not don't you ever fail, love never fails. He doesn't do any of those things. He personifies that, why? Because it is a person, is it not? The scriptures say that God is love. And if these are the characteristics of love, then go back to it and consider these things from the person of Jesus Christ. Will you, for, for the first part, love bears all things. Love hides, covers every sin and offense. Always, all of them, universe, big word. So what does the scripture tell us about Jesus Christ? That he, John 1, 29, John the Baptist, when he first pointed him out at the beginning of his ministry, he said, behold the Lamb of God who, what? takes away the sins of the world. Love bears all things. He bore all of our sin on his shoulders on the cross. Number two, love believes all things. It invests and never disengages. Look, if we were an investment, it's a losing investment, right? The future's for us apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and we have no shot. And yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He knew all the failures you're gonna have before you ever made them. He knew all the sins that you were and still are going to commit and yet he went to the cross anyway and said, I'll bear them, I'll cover them. Love covers a multitude of sins. Third, love hopes all things. Love hopes for the best every single time. Hebrews 12 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That there was joy before him, that he knows the inevitable outcome of the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives. And he knows that when we are with him, we will be like him. 
that he never did it begrudgingly. He did it for joy. And even Jeremiah tells us that he has a future. He has hope for us. And then finally, love endures all things. Love sticks it out. Love never gives up. Love never bails. I mean, think about this. The famous words on the cross, as Jesus hung there, carrying the burden of our sin and shame, what did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Have you ever been abandoned by a friend? Even whether it be for something you did wrong or maybe something that just was a misunderstanding and and you're right and yet you've been abandoned. There's an old phrase that says that a friend makes the good times twice as good and the bad times half as bad. Is there anything worse than having a friend abandon you more painful? Probably not because a lot of times when we're going through other types of pain, it's the fact that we can pull a friend there with us and get comfort and community with them that it helps us go through those difficult things. But when the friend's not there, isn't everything just magnified? What's worse than that? Have you been abandoned by someone? Jesus was. God literally turned his back on his own son. He knows what that feels like. He knows what that feels like. And the the amazing thing, when you think about that question, the, the first thing that's amazing is that even in the moment of that, he says, my God, my God, the fact that he says that those two times, he's still being faithful. He didn't follow our tendencies that are like, God turned his back on me, then I'm turning my back on him. But he declared even that moment, my God, my God. And, and then the, the most amazing part, we, we look at it with sympathy and, and, and sorrow to some degree, man. Oh, what, what that must have felt like to have the father turn his back on Jesus. But the, the thing that we tend to not think about as much, and we should, is that we know the answer to the question. <laughs> my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I know, because of me. That's why. He, he forsook his own son. Jesus got abandoned, not because he did anything wrong. Not because he was, because I am. Because Jeff Hensley is a sinner. And he willingly carried my burden and my sin to the cross. He went through the ultimate rejection. Why? Because of me. And then, when we put our faith in Christ, when we turn our back on, so we repent of our sin and say, you're, I'm following you. You are my Lord. You are God. I believe in you. You've risen, died. You've died and was risen from the grave. I believe. What does Jesus then turn right around and say to his followers? I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. Or as it goes on, love never ends. Love never fails. Isn't that unbelievable? The the people who have no shot at doing any of this are the recipients of it in perfection from God himself. He says, I will never abandon you. I will never, ever leave you. I will never turn my back on you. How do you know you're a Christian? What is a Christian? A Christian has been confronted by love, has been crushed by love, has been captured by love, and is now motivated by love. Look, you cannot go through 1 Corinthians 13 and teach these things to your children, to your friends, to yourself, to any of them. You can't make this a list of things to do until you meet and are captured by love itself first. Because no one can stand under the weight of that. 
But then when we realize the love that God has told us, that the love is God is extended to us, the love God is gifted to us, how can we not? We fail, we mess up, and then we turn right around and go, but God, is, there's grace new every day. And so I'm gonna keep going. That's good news. Some might say the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you met love yet? Or are you still trying to go, I will earn the love of God by doing these things. And <laughs> good luck with that. Good luck with that. I have tried to do that for most of my life and failed miserably. And it's made me self-conscious. It's made me exhausted. It's made me fearful. It's affected my relationship with God. I always felt like he had, I was just an annoyance to him. And yet he says, Jeff, you're working so hard to gain something I have already freely given you. Just know the love that Christ has for you. Stand up with me. You close your eyes and bow your head and, and I just wanna give opportunity right now, man. If you are in this place and you have never opened your heart up to the love of Christ, you have, you're still trying to earn that which has freely been given you, then I want to encourage you, man. Don't do that anymore. You are wasting your time. It's impossible to do. But what we want you to realize is that Christ has already paid the penalty for all of your failures. He has proven his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for you. And he just wants you. Just bottom line. He loves you. So much of 1 Corinthians is corrective in nature. So much of 1 Corinthians is knock it off, knock it off, knock it off. But today we have the privilege of looking at a text right here and just reveling in the declaration that just says, Jesus loves you. He loves you. There's gonna be some men and women available in the back, some of the huddle leaders or elders here at the church. Sam's gonna close us in a song about God's love, about the fact that God's love never fails us, it never abandons us, but I beg you, don't leave this place and keep walking that walk. Don't leave this place and keep fretting and struggling over, am I loved and is my performance good enough? Are you loved? Yes. Is your performance good enough? No, but Jesus Christ has done it all for us. And there are some men and women in the back that would love to be able to help you see and experience the love of Jesus Christ. It's not about a bunch of rules to follow. It's about the love that Christ has given us and has poured out on us. And we'd like to welcome you into the family. We'd like to show you how to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we'd like to extend to you, to the best of our fallen ability, the love that Christ has given us. So I beg you, come to the back. There's music going, people have their eyes closed, they're singing, don't let pride get in the way. Go back there and talk to someone and receive prayer. And if there's areas too that those of us who are believers were like, man, I have failed in these things, then don't leave this place with guilt. Know that what matters is that the love of Jesus never fails. And then we go try to do the best we can. We make amends where we fail. We try to get ourselves up. We dust ourselves off and keep going. But the important thing is not our performance. The important thing is the fact that Jesus Christ has performed it all. I can't believe they didn't amen at that. Let's try that again. The important thing is that Jesus Christ has done it all. 